Well, this week we continue in the letter Jude, learning how to contend for the faith and those things that we need to fight against, contend against, that will call us away from Jesus. And this week we're going to learn about contending against false motives. Now, who in here, I know it's probably rare, but who in here has ever had a stinky attitude? No one? Let me rephrase that. Who had a stinky attitude this morning? (laughs) Alarm went off? No, you know. No, it, it really does. At the end of the day, God knows our heart. He knows why we do what we do, even when we don't. But if we are going to be healthy spiritually, if we're going to follow Christ faithfully, if we're going to proclaim the gospel faithfully, if we're going to worship in spirit and in truth, if we're going to grow his kingdom through service and witnessing and disciple making, we really do have to have the right motives. Why we do what we do has to be the right thing. Now, God can and will work through anything. Paul even said in Philippians that there were those who preached the gospel simply trying to get him in trouble, and he laughed about it because he basically says, well, in the end, the gospel's being preached, and uh, joke's on them. God's going to use them, and people are going to be reached. But that doesn't make for a healthy church. That was an unhealthy situation that Paul was saying even God is bigger than that. When we look at a church setting, it's important for us to understand that why we do what we do is really as important as to what we do. Because we can go through the motions and have a heart that is not right with God, and therefore those motions aren't going to do a whole lot. We have to learn to contend against false motives, against selfishness, against the, the idea that somehow God is serving us instead of us serving him Because any time we take our eye off of Jesus, any time we stop focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we run the risk, as we've already seen, of of things turning into self-help, of things turning into something selfish, which will always end poorly. And so look with me in Jude 14 and 16 today, 14 through 16. And it says, it was about these, these are the the false uh, believers It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You know, I really wish Jude wouldn't mince words so we could just get to the point of what it is he's trying to say. But I think one of the things for us to first understand before we really dive into the words of Jude is, one, God is always watching. God is watching. Okay, there is nowhere in this world that a person can go There is nothing we can do to hide anything from God. That includes our thoughts, that includes our motives, that includes our our actions. It doesn't matter. God is always watching. And when we think of God, 
While God is absolutely personal in nature, and he is, we have the Trinity, which is eternal relationship on display, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all fulfilled within themselves. It's an amazing thing. God is absolutely personal in nature. He is also absolutely unchanging and all-powerful in nature at the same time. And it's two natures of God that we have to pull together because what what I see in in a lot of circles is we either seem to focus so much on the personal, we lose the transcendent, or we focus so much on the transcendent, we lose the personal. Here's the thing, God is both at the same time. He is absolutely personal and he is absolutely transcendent, both at the same time, all the time. And so what words do we come up with to describe that in, in the modern world and in the theological world? Well, words like omnipresent omniscient, omnipotent. What does that mean? That means God is everywhere, knows everything, and is all-powerful at all times. And when we think of God, these attributes, they have to be at the front of our mind. Is God personal? Does God love us? Absolutely. He loves us with a love that can't be understood, that goes beyond our comprehension. But don't allow thinking about God's love and grace and and, and the gifts of what he has given us take you away from the fact that he is God Almighty who spoke the universe into being. Spoke it into being. And we we have to realize that it's beyond uh, our comprehension and that that is not going to change according to our opinions. We know who God is because he has revealed himself to us through his word, through his son, through his spirit, and they will always agree nothing that God reveals will ever contradict his word, nothing God reveals will ever contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, nothing he did will ever, that the spirit will never lead us into anything that contradicts either of those things. They will always agree. And so when we think of God, We've got to raise our understanding, in a sense, expand our understanding of who God is. For a person who is healthy spiritually and walking with God, God will be ever expanding in his greatness in their mind. If you think the exact same of God now that you did five years ago, something is wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that what you've learned is going to be unlearned, okay? It's just, it should get bigger and deeper. What is true will always be true. So it's not, you know, tomorrow you're not going to wake up and be like, you know what, God doesn't love me. No, that's not what I'm talking about. It will be the fact that that love will go deeper and deeper and you'll start to realize, wow, God is amazing and he is beyond me. And so when we think of God as always watching, what is your first reaction? Because Proverbs 15.3 says this, says the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. Now, what is your first reaction to God is always watching? Is it negative? Is it like, uh uh-oh? You mean always, always? Always, always, always? What is the first reaction? Well, what our first reaction tells us more about our own understanding of God and where we are then it actually tells us about God. What is your first reaction? Is it negative? Is it positive? We have to ask, why would I respond to that truth negatively? Now, we all know the, 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 the answer to that, right? Why would we respond to 
that truth of God is always watching, why would that be a negative thing? Because what would be my motive for responding negatively? The easy road is, am I trying to hide something from God? But I think it runs deeper than that. What motive would we have to react negatively to God always watching? Many times it has to do with how we view God. And it's an incomplete view. If we view God as an angry, vengeful, wrathful, only God who wants to harm us and is just waiting to punish us, then we're obviously going to have a negative reaction to, oh, he's always watching me. And how many of us in here, maybe, and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but maybe you grew up with that. Maybe that was something, you know, somebody in your life at some point is like, you better not do that, God's watching, and, and that's all you ever got from him. You know, maybe only sermons you heard for a season in life was just how much God is going to get you, and, and maybe it, it influenced you as a child, and so you grew up with this view of God as angry and, and just waiting to punish you. Anybody grow up with that? Yeah, it happens. And at that point, it's hard for people, if that's all you've known and that's all you've heard of God is how he's out to get you and going to punish you, it's hard for us to see him as loving. It's hard to see that as, well, yeah, he'll welcome me so he can get me. That's, that's what people see. And so it's our ideas of God many times that influence how we think about God, how we respond to the truths of God. And sometimes it's because we make basic assumptions that just aren't true. They're not biblical. Now, is, can God be wrathful and vengeful? Absolutely. But what did the scripture say? It said, the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the good and the evil. So he's watching everybody. But listen to 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Well, that's very different. If you grew up with a vengeful, horrible God who just wants to punish the world, that doesn't fit. That his eyes are, he's watching everybody, but he's actively searching for those he can help? Well, that should change your view of God right there. That should give you an idea of, wait, God wants to help. That's his, that's his intention. He's watching everything and looking for those who will receive help from him. That's a very different God. That isn't a vengeful God. That's a loving God. And when we understand that God has revealed about what God has revealed about himself, we see that he isn't waiting to punish, but to help us. Now, how many people, maybe you, maybe people in your life, would find freedom in faith if they truly believed that God is watching to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him? Do we really believe that? When push comes to shove, do we, do we look and say, you know what, I know God wants to help. That God isn't just waiting to get me, that he's actually waiting to save me. It's a whole different mindset. And what this brings into it is our motive. It's life-changing, but it also cuts to the core of what God is looking at, and that is our motives. Notice he said, 
He's waiting to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless before him. Now, don't go to the legalistic place where it's saying, oh, he's only going to help those who are perfect. Okay, so nobody. That's not what he's saying. If, if blameless heart means perfect, then we're all, it's just we should close it up and go home because none of us has that. But what do we find? We find in the Old Testament a man named David that God said he is a man after my own heart. And David, let's just say he was faulted. Okay, David was anything but perfect. He had some serious character flaws. He made some seriously bad choices in his life. He committed murder, committed adultery. He did all the, you know, just check the boxes. Okay, he's there. Bad parent, yeah. (laughs) And yet, God was with him. Why? Because his heart was blameless before God. His motives, while his actions many times, and he would confess it, and we'll talk about that in a minute, at the core, his motives were he wanted to love God. He wanted to please God. He did it imperfectly. He did it horribly at different times. But what do we find? We find when he did mess up, what would he do? He would repent. He would come back and be like, okay, God, I I did this. That's what a blameless heart before God does. He's not saying that you have to be absolute perfection. He's saying you have to be in the fight against your own sin and seeking God above everything else. Because God examines the heart and knows our motives and has vowed to bring every false motive and every sin into judgment while simultaneously promising to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless before him. See, this is how perfect God is. His eyes roam to and fro throughout the earth, watching the good and the evil, seeking those he can give support to, Strong support, it says, to those whose heart is blameless and promising in those whose hearts aren't blameless, I will judge. And, you know, God can do both of those things at once. We can't. Have you ever noticed if you get into a judgmental mindset, you can't love people? You you just can't do it. Like, we aren't capable of that because we're sinful, we're broken. We don't understand perfect justice. We We don't have a holy vengeance within us. God's vengeance is holy, which means it's a perfect expression of his holiness, which means it will always be 100% right and justified when he expresses it. And so he can hold at the same time a love and a desire and a willingness to help those whose hearts are blameless. Even when they mess up, even when they fall, God will welcome them back and say, look, let's, let's stand back up, let's dust you off, and let's try this again. Now, why did you do that? Let's fix the attitude. Let's let's fix what's broken here. He can do that while at the same time promising to judge those who aren't willing to do that. Promising to bring every judge and every false motive, every sin and every false motive, motive into judgment. And so what we can see is Not only is God watching all the time, but another truth for us to grab hold of is that God will call sin to account. In no circumstance will God ever allow sin to go unpunished. Okay? Never. There is no sin, not one, not one stray thought, not one violation of his holiness by the people he created will ever go unjudged and unpunished. It's just where that punishment falls. 
For those who believe in Jesus Christ, that punishment fell out on the cross, was poured out on the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God, on the cross, as he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. You see, it wasn't just, hey, Jesus died so we can go to heaven. It was that God was saying, I'm going to judge every sin that's ever been committed, and if you want your sins forgiven, this is the path. It is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the sacrifice of Jesus was God's judgment on sin poured out so that those who are in Jesus, there is no more judgment of sin left because it all was poured out on the cross. And that is the first step towards a person's heart becoming blameless is putting your faith in Jesus Christ. We admit, I'm broken, I'm sinful, my life is messed up, I I am not blameless before you, God, but the one who died for me was blameless before you, and so I put my faith in him and the death he paid on the cross for me, and I accept that sacrifice so now my heart can be blameless. We're only blameless fully because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But those who don't accept that are saying, I'm going to stand before God in judgment one day and I will defend myself. Anybody looking forward to that? As everything's laid bare, again, nothing is hidden from his view. And so this is what Jude says. He says to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now notice, he said to execute judgment on all, but to convict a certain group. Even Christians are going to stand before God in judgment one day. But you know what that judgment is? We stand before God And then Jesus says, they're mine, they believed in me, and they checked the Lamb's book of life, and your name is written in there, and so the judgment is not guilty by way of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, welcome into heaven. That's it. Others stand up and say, I don't think I'm guilty, God, and they say, is his name in the book? They check the lambs, they're not in there. And so what do they do? Revelation literally says, books are opened. So I like this picture of just books. And they start pulling them out, slapping them down, saying, okay, June 1st, 1991. What you got to say about yourself now? And you know what? We'll know. We'll know exactly what they're talking about. And we will be speechless before God. Those who wish to stand in judgment and defend themselves will find that their mouths are stopped by the perfect law of God that will convict us. We will have nothing to say. Did not my word say, do not steal? You stole. You're guilty. And that's just one. Let's move to the next. You see, this is eternity, so it doesn't matter how long it takes. God's got all eternity. And he's like, yeah, let's go through all of it. And God will be proven right and holy and just in the end. 
And so what does Jude tell us right here? He repeats it so many times. He uses the word ungodly. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Think he's trying to say something? He's saying that their lives did not consider God. Their actions were not rooted in God. Their words were not rooted in faith in God. Their motives were not rooted in the kingdom of God. God was not a part of their lives. And to look up the, you know, the word study on this, this word ungodly in the Greek literally just means to be without reverence, without fear of God. They lived dismissing the truth of God. Just dismissing it. It doesn't mean that they had to be openly hostile and anti-God, that they're, you know, these atheists that are out to tell everybody, don't believe in God. It could just simply be that they didn't care. They just live their lives with like, Scripture, not important. I got more important things to do. And that they simply dismissed the things of God. They were without reverence. They did not see God as God. They did not recognize him as God. And the Scriptures tell us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. And so what Jude is showing us is this isn't a simple matter of making a mistake or committing a sin. David committed many sins, was still forgiven. Everyone in this room, we've all committed many sins. If we believe in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of the cross, we're forgiven. What he's saying is that these people are the ones who have chosen to reject that forgiveness. And they live among us in our churches causing trouble. Remember, that is what this whole thing is about, as he talks about these are people who crept in unnoticed. And they are hidden reefs at your love feast. They, they are the, the waterless clouds. These are the people within churches that don't know God but claim to know God and so delude themselves, so deceive themselves that they think they're okay and they're not. This is an intentional rejection of the things of God that is drawing others into the error. Okay, this isn't just one person. What Jude is getting at is these are people that come in and influence entire groups of people to follow their example. And it is deadly. And for whatever reason, within Jude's situation here, this was being tolerated. And that's why Jude is writing to them, telling them, look at what's going on. He says, I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith. Don't allow this downward trend to just continue. Fight for what's right and good. Keep your eyes back focused on the gospel and fight against what's happening. Don't just go along with it. You see, one commentator, Peter Davids, put it this way. He says, behavior alone may simply be ungodly, but when it is taught as justified and even advocated and the authorities teaching otherwise are slandered, then it can be most dangerous to the health of others. This is what happens when churches get off track. You see, that again is what Jude is all about, is guarding and contending against those, those derailing uh, moments in churches and, and in the lives of believers that, that pull them away from the gospel and lead them into unhealthy things. 
And you know, you've heard misery loves company. You know what loves company even more is sin. It loves company. It will go find company. It will convince people to join. It it will always do that. Sin will not just be content to stay alone. It will always seek to bring other people into it. But if we as a church stand, stand on the gospel, there is always this inbuilt guard in the Holy Spirit and the word of God and the mission of God to keep us from falling into those traps. And so one of mankind's greatest problems with sin is our willingness to rationalize it and to accept it. There aren't many people that will actually deny the existence of sin, right? I mean, you can, you can take your most hardcore atheist, and there aren't many of them that are like, you know what, murder, really, I don't see what the problem is. They're, they're going to admit kind of a level of like, but this is still should, you know, this is bad. You shouldn't do it. Now, when they don't understand God, they have no moral basis for that. They have no foundation for it, but they'll still admit that it's true. They'll say, it's, you know, for the good of society, we shouldn't kill each other. Well, that's obvious. But today, we've really entered into a time where we just don't want to recognize sin for what it is. Rebellion against God. Born of a rebellious spirit, born of selfishness, born of the flesh. Today, we'll call it a personal struggle. A a personal weakness. A growth point. You ever heard that? It's a growth point. Boy, talk about being positive, right? It's a growth point. What, What is our motive in calling it those things? We're trying to disassociate ourselves and lessen the severity of the truth. That's all it is. And it's not that we need to be out browbeating each other or even ourselves or whatever. We just have to let the truth be what it is. Just let the truth be the truth. When we read it in Scripture, let the truth speak to you. And if it convicts you, then start praying about repentance because God's obviously telling you something. Don't rationalize it. Don't go find people to support you and and hold you up in it. Just let God do his thing. Because what does God do? Is he waiting to punish you? No. If you are a born-again believer, then he is waiting to give you strong support. So when God convicts a Christian of sin, it's not so that he can belittle us and destroy us. He's saying, I want to help you move beyond this. I want you to grow. I want you to experience life. But you can't while you're in this place, not at the level I want you to. I want you to experience more life. I want your knowledge of me to expand. I want your your vision of me to expand, to get bigger. And while you are where you are, that can't happen. And so I want to move you forward. Because, you see, Jude is having none of it here. He's not allowing them to disassociate themselves from it at all. He's writing to a church that's been compromised by ungodliness They've wandered, they, they've, you know, these people crept in, the, the, the poison is spreading and they're starting to be unfaithful and sin is just being tolerated and Jude is having none of it. Listen again to what he says, to execute, he's saying God is going to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
He's saying, look, we've got to deal with this. You can't just turn away from it. You can't just ignore it. You have to deal with it. Now, are there deeper, deeper issues that must be addressed when dealing with sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes we just have to grow as people. Did you grow up in a bad household and you just, you know, you, all you understood was anger growing up and now you're dealing with it and God's convicting you of it? Well, yeah, okay, yeah, you're going to have to deal with some of those issues. That's okay. God will walk you through that. God will walk you through it. It's not that, you know, God isn't just like, okay, right now, you better stop right now. And if you don't, then, you know, I'm mad at you. And I'm going to get you and I'm going to punish you. That's not how it works. God starts convicting. You know what he's doing? He's speaking to your heart. And he's saying, okay, it's time to grow. It's time to put childish ways behind you and become an adult in the faith. And he will take us through that process. Sometimes there are very deep issues that have to be dealt with, deep personal hurts and scars that have to be dealt with. And that the sin in your life is just the fruit of a deeper issue that's going on. Yes, but it all has to be healed. But you know what? It won't be healed if we aren't willing to address it and just admit that, yes, this is sin in my life. And whatever it takes, I've got to change. I've got to grow. I've got to move away from it. Because when we are desperate and we accept it as the truth, then we will be willing to do the hard work of getting to the core of like, why is this acceptable to me? Who, who in here has had that process in their own heart? God convicted you of something, and, and after a while it became so, like you just knew, like this has to go. This has to go. I can't be like this anymore. I can't think like this. My life has to change. And, and God just keeps convicting, and, and just like the voice gets louder and louder and louder. And so you start the hard work then of, okay, why am I like this? You know what? That's the moment you grow. That's the moment when your, your heart is now open to God because you're like, yeah, this is my problem. I may have grown up with it, but it's now mine. And how I respond to it is what matters, and I want to honor God. And God is like, okay, now let's get in there and let's do some heart work. And you know what? He does it. He does it. And he does it gently. He does it effectively. And when we genuinely give sin like that to him and learn to think on ourselves with sober judgment, not rationalizing, but not thinking too harshly either, but just understanding God's got me in process and I'm walking with him, amazing things happen. But we have to start with the conclusion. Start with the conclusion that repentance is not only needed, but absolutely necessary. We cannot rationalize sin. And you know why? Because God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is real. Okay, God has warned us what it's going to He's already told us in Jude there. He said he's going to execute, he's going to convict all ungodliness, word or deed, or whatever it is. But listen to how God told us in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. Now, I don't know about you, but that will freak a person out. Earth and sky fled in the presence of his power. You know what that means? That means reality as we know it is going to melt into the background. It's gone. That's what he's telling us right here. When he says earth and sky fled, he's saying what we understood to be real 
is going to be gone forever. And what's going to be left will be Jesus Christ sitting on his throne executing judgment. The veil will be taken away and we will see reality as it is. It says, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Bank on it. God has told us how this story ends. He gave us the ending at the beginning. And he said, the choice is now yours. You see, Jude is letting us know that God is going to call it all to account. Every action, every word, every bit of ungodly influence that was spread by false teachers and false believers with false motives will be laid bare before God in judgment. And so they may have influence in a church for a time. They may gain a following on earth for a time. But in the end, if their teaching did not draw people closer to Jesus Christ and proclaim him as Lord and talk about his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection and his coming judgment, it's going to be judged itself. And it will be condemned. And so what we have to learn in this is that our attitude really does reveal our hearts. Attitude really does reveal the heart. Like, and, and you know, there are those times when we got a bad attitude. we got to look, what inside me? What's leading to this? Why am I thinking the way that I'm thinking? Why am I contemplating what I'm contemplating? What is going on inside my own heart? Now, there's only one way for us to know that, and that is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We are not capable of judging that for ourselves. Jeremiah tells us that above all, the heart is sick, it is deceitful, and desperately ill. We will lie to ourselves over and over and over again just to make ourselves feel better and avoid the truth. But you know what? In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and is able to divide between soul and spirit. You know what it's saying? The word of God will tell you why you do what you do. There is nobody that is trying to figure out what ails them and what the problem is that can't get there with a Bible and a a, a pencil and, and a pad of paper that if they'll put the time in and try to get there, God will get them there every time. But we can't do it ourselves. We'll lie to ourselves on it. And so if you want to know where you stand with God, just look at your own focus and listen to your own words. Compare what Paul says we as Christians should do as a way of life. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice, pray, give thanks, not once. 
not when needed, but always, without ceasing, and in all circumstances. That sounds like a lifestyle to me. That that should define who we are. He didn't say do it without fail. He just said do it without ceasing. We're going to have moments. We're going to fall. We're going to be King David at times and do the wrong thing. We're going to make mistakes. What we do with that mistake is what's important. Do we come back to God? Do we confess it? Do we repent from it and say, okay, now i got some heart work to do? Or do we continue in it? Because compare what Paul said we're to do, rejoice, pray, give thanks without ceasing, with what Jude says of the false believers. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You, you couldn't have a more night and day contrast between two groups of people. And that's what it should be. Those who walk with Christ and have the Holy Spirit and are in the Word and are fellowshipping with God will be led to pray and rejoice and give thanks for what God has done because we see through the cross what God has done for us and we see the future that we are forgiven and that we have heaven waiting for us. And whatever we're facing now, we'll be able to say, you know what, God's going to get me through it. I'm going to make it. I just got to be faithful. God's going to get me through. Or, what does he say? He says, or grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. And this is easy to spot when our focus is on God. When we are worshiping, discipling, serving, making disciples, we will always find something to be thankful for. Amen? We, we will. It doesn't mean that all of your problems are gone. That's a, don't accept the lie that worshiping God somehow means you won't have struggles in life. That's not the truth. It just means it won't define us. We won't see the struggles as final. We won't see it as a, a judgment of God's love for us. We'll look to the cross and say, but I know I'm loved because Jesus died for me. And I can get through this because I have God, because God will lead me through it. Even if God leads you to the Red Sea, he will part it. Okay, it's just what he does. And you know, he likes doing that. He likes taking his people into impossible situations so that he can do the impossible and be praised for it. So if your life isn't making sense, and you're like, God, why are you doing this? Just get ready. It's because he wants to do something to make his name known. Not yours. And so... What he shows us is that we will always be able to find, find something to be thankful for, some reason to praise God, something to rejoice, but false motives, a bad attitude, a heart that is not focused on God will always find something wrong and will always rock the boat unnecessarily. You ever been around the, the boat rockers? This is just all they do? And, and I mean it, I, I've, been, I've been in enough churches that, you know, there are times that I'm like, that's enough. And I've been around it enough that God gave me a saying that if your oar's in the water, you don't have time to rock the boat. It's those who don't have an oar in the water and nothing better to do that start criticizing the way everybody else is rowing. That start causing the trouble. And that's where he says that Jude says that when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we're not walking with him. We become grumblers, malcontents, self-serving, loudmouth boasters, and unjust in our lives. That's the favoritism. We become unjust. 
we will actually just complain to complain. Mumblers, malcontents. If life is always bad, and I mean always, turn to God and say, you know what, God, I know you've done good things for me. Help me to see it. But you see, when we get a heart that is malcontented, that just means incapable of contentment. We refuse to be contented. And we saw that on display last week when we talked about Numbers chapter 11 and the graves of craving. God literally is providing them food out of thin air, and they complained about it. You see, it's not because of a lack of blessing from God. It's because of bad motives and bad attitude within ourselves. But when we focus on the truth, the more we walk with God, the more our view of God will become in line, will come into line with reality. We'll see his blessings and we'll be thankful for them. We will see what he has provided. And we will see that he's even providing through the difficulties we're experiencing. And we'll even be able to give thanks in the midst of difficulty because we know that difficulty is not the end of life. It's not the whole story. That there's more to it. And so our fear of God will increase, but so will our love of God. And as this happens, our contentment in life will also increase. A sure sign that someone is out of step with God is an attitude that can only see the bad. It is a sure sign of a life that is out of touch with God. Because what did Paul tell us? He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See, he's not saying do a checklist of like, okay, I gave thanks, I did this to God, okay, where's my blessing? He's saying learn to see life in such a way that you have a reason to rejoice. You don't lose hope, so you keep praying because hope is always present because of what God has done for you, so your prayer life is there because you have hope, And you give thanks in all circumstances because you know God has gone ahead of you. This is a heart that is content before God. And what we have to do with that is just to keep the things of God in front of us as much as we can. But I mean the truth, not just church attendance or, you know, listening to K-Love or whatever. I mean the real truth of God, the hard things of God, the gospel the fact that I know that I, I'm sinful and i got to repent, i got to turn away from it. Keep the real hard truths of God in front of us at all time and filter your life through that. And that's one of the reasons we take the Lord's Supper together because it is a reminder that, look, our salvation's not about us. It's about what he did for us. We didn't, we didn't earn it. He earned it for us and gave it to us. And that's what I mean by keeping these things in front of us over and over. It reminds us of our place in the world and our place in life. And it enables us to keep God in the big picture where he belongs, keep us in our lane where we belong, and to keep the malcontents and the grumblers out of your headspace. Don't let them steal your joy or distract you from the good things that God has done. And so today, we will take the Lord's Supper together as a reminder of what God has done for us. Because on the night before his crucifixion, 
Jesus gathered with his disciples, whom he called his friends. And he took the bread and he said, this bread is my body, which shall be broken for you. And after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which shall be given for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so today we remember that our salvation was purchased at the price of the Son of God on the cross. That his body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. And so together we eat of the bread. And together we drink of the cup. Father God, we thank you so much for this day and this time. God, we thank you for the grace and the examples you've given us in Scripture to teach us. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to obey. God, that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. God, that our lives would reflect your glory, your grace, your love. God, that our lives would be an example of the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That this would describe us, not as things we're striving for, but things that have happened within us because of what you have done. Lord, help us to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. As we leave this place today, God, use us to share your love with those around us. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.